Hey, yo, peace. This is Lord Jamal, a.k.a. Supreme Allah, and you're checking out Inside Oz Podcast. Peace. Sister, you do not want to see my anger. My anger is massive, all-encompassing. Being accused of three bitches, disloyal, dishonest, disrespectful. I don't disagree that there's evil in the world. I do disagree that we're powerless against it. You know, if I was a girl, you'd get tough. If you was a girl, so you'd be butt-ass ugly. She's getting married? To a Bobby? No, no, not a Bobby, Tim. He's a guard. He guards the queen. Yeah, well, then I can see how they've got a lot in fucking common! Try to find a common thing that binds us all. Right. Hello everyone and welcome to Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. Just need to take care of something before we get into the episode today, as at the time that I'm recording, which is in early December... We've just had the whole hashtag RIP Twitter thing occur in the wake of Elon Musk's $44 billion takeover of the company. As I'm recording this, the platform is still alive, but who knows whether it will be or not by the time I get this episode out. A lot of people have been leaving Twitter recently due to Elon's takeover, which, if that's what you decide to do, far be it from me to tell you otherwise, and have been moving to other social media platforms, with Mastodon having seen a huge jump in users. I will be keeping the podcast Twitter feed active until the company either dies or starts to charge for the service, something which has been rumoured but I don't think will actually happen. But if you have decided to make Mastodon your new social media home, you can follow the podcast on there by following the handle at insideozpodcast at mastodon.world. As I say, the at insideozpodcast Twitter handle will remain active for the time being, while the podcast's Instagram feed, which also uses the handle at insideozpodcast, remains unaffected. So, with all of that out of the way, today we're going to be looking back at Series 4, Episode 12, Cuts Like a Knife. Pulling an 8.6 on IMDb, the episode was written by Tom Fontana and directed by returning guest director Steve Buscemi, back to direct his second episode having previously directed Series 3, Episode 5, US Mail. And yes, I'm aware that I called him Steve Buscemi last time out, and yes, I'm aware of the debate over the pronunciation of his surname whether it's Buscemi, or Buscemi, or Buscemi as it's pronounced in Sicily. The way I see it, the world knows him as Buscemi, and even he said that it can be either and that he had to go to Sicily to find out he'd been pronouncing his name wrong, but at the end of the day, the guy knows how to pronounce his own name, so Steve Buscemi it is. The episode was originally broadcast on January 28th, 2001, a day on which... One week on from naming 37 new names to the College of Cardinals, Pope John Paul II felt the need to name five more, this time naming cardinals from Germany, South Africa, Bolivia and Ukraine. Fugitive financier Mark Rich announced that he would return to the US to face tax evasion charges despite having received a pardon by outgoing President Bill Clinton. And in Super Bowl 35, held at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa, Florida, in front of an announced attendance of 71,921 and an estimated domestic viewing audience of 84.3 million, the Baltimore Ravens beat the New York Giants by 34 points to 7 to earn their first Super Bowl title. 
A one-sided game which saw Giants punter Brad Maynard kick a record setting 11 punts, a record which unfortunately for him still stands today, it could be argued that the halftime show was the event's only real highlight. Titled The Kings of Rock and Pop, the show was headlined by a back-and-forth medley between NSYNC and Aerosmith, and also featured appearances by Ben Stiller, Adam Sandler and Chris Rock in a pre-recorded sketch intro, as well as musical performances by Britney Spears, Mary J. Blige and Nelly, as well as Tremors featuring the earthquake horns. In Oz, you have to be ready to defend yourself at any given moment. Chances are the person coming at you has a weapon, so you gotta have one too. You gotta be ready to kill your enemies. Or at least slow them down. Kick off with Act 1, with Augustus telling us that in Oz you've gotta be ready to defend yourself at any given moment because there's a strong possibility that someone is going to come at you with some sort of weapon, and that it's best to have one to hand yourself, and be ready to kill your enemies as we see an inmate approaching from behind with an eyes and look out Augustus! Oh, phew. The inmate freeze frames when Augustus says that if you're not going to kill them, then you at least need to slow them down. This monologue here ties back to the very first scenes of the show in which Miguel was stabbed in receiving a discharge, as well as the initial meeting between Beecher and Schillinger, where Schillinger told Beecher to start wearing armour, as well as lifting his shirt to reveal that he wears the phone book for his. Those early scenes showed both men to be woefully unprepared for what Oz had in store for them, whereas now they've been in there a number of years and have become accustomed to what they need to do on a daily basis just to stay alive. Of course, had Augustus conducted this monologue back then instead of four years down the line, maybe both men could have been spared a lot of pain and anguish but hindsight is a beautiful thing. Over in Leo's office, he's giving out to Miguel about the lack of information he's been given since allowing Miguel out of solitary, saying that Miguel hasn't told him anything that he doesn't already know. It's not clear exactly how long Miguel has been back in M-City, but there's definitely been a passage of time of some kind as Leo has had the time to shave off his moustache since the previous episode. Miguel informs Leo that Morales won't let him back into the gang proper unless he kills Burr. Helpful Leo tells Miguel that if that's the case, then he's fucked and of no use to him, and that he might as well send Miguel back to solitary right now. Miguel quite rightly protests, reckoning that if Morales has ordered for him to kill, then that's conspiracy to commit murder. But Leo says, so what? Morales would still be in Oz regardless and still running drugs. So obviously Leo is looking for something more to hit Morales with. Not sure exactly what that is other than getting Morales on death row somehow. Or perhaps Leo is looking to hit Morales with some sort of new charge in the hopes of getting Morales transferred to a different prison, something which we'll come back to later on. But it's not really clear what exactly Leo's intentions are here. Miguel asks for a couple of days to try and figure out how to get into Morales' good graces, which Leo does agree to, although he doesn't look too pleased about having to do so. As he returns to M-City, Miguel is greeted by Morales, who asks where Miguel has been. Miguel half-heartedly jokes about kissing Leo's ass as the whole gang takes their seats. Morales reckons that Miguel kissing Leo's ass is kind of funny, but Miguel tells him that it's not as funny as he thinks, and tells Morales that Leo wants him to rat on Morales in exchange for staying out of solitary. Miguel then proposes to Morales the idea of being a double agent, feeding Leo the information that Morales wants to be fed to him. Morales admits that that's a brilliant idea, if not for the fact that there's no information that he wants Leo to have, whether that be true or otherwise. Like a modern-day Facebook post, Miguel proposes the concept of giving Leo misinformation, but Morales is quick to point out that if Leo finds the information provided to him to be false, he isn't going to trust Miguel for very long, 
and says that if he was Miguel, which he's glad he's not, he'd prepare himself for the inevitable, spending the next 50 years on his lonesome. Couple of things in this scene, we get a quick shot of what I'm assuming is a new member of the Latino gang here laughing at Morales' jokes. I'm not totally sure who this is, and there's no one in the cast list for this episode that links to him, and I think he may only appear in this episode, so the identity of this man remains a mystery. Also something that has been an issue throughout the show is the scar on the right side of Miguel's face. For some reason, it's looking a lot more prominent in this scene. Sometimes it looks quite faded, which having occurred a few years back in terms of storyline, it should have done by now, although obviously it won't disappear completely, while other times it almost looks like a fresh wound. This is also the first time that I've noticed the tattoo on Miguel's left bicep, something which he seems to have acquired during his time on the outside. I've mentioned before that the symbols on Kirk's right arm are real, but this one, a cross over a heart with a name ribbon on it, although the text is far too small to read, is a fake one just used for the show. Kirk Acevedo doesn't have a tattoo on that part of his arm in real life, at least not at the time of recording. With Leo losing his patience and having had his double agent idea rejected by Morales, Miguel visits with Burr to propose a third option. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, what's up? Which one, Alvarez? I want to talk to you, Lois. We got no business with you. Morales wants you dead. <laughs> there ain't no headline. He's ordered me to do the deed. I see. I don't want to have to spill any more blood than I already done, man. Still don't see what it is you want. I want to help you take out Morales. You're playing a dangerous game, son. Betraying your own skin. Hey, they betrayed me first, man. No doubt. But the trouble with getting in bed with a traitor is you never know when he may betray you. I appreciate your offer, but we're going to have to decline. Decline. Burr is spot on the money here with his point about not being willing to trust Miguel if he's so willing to betray what he describes as his own skin, even though Miguel is completely justified in doing so. It really illustrates just how desperate Miguel is, not only to not return to solitary, but to make a fresh start entirely by bringing down El Norte as it exists in Oz. It doesn't look as though he wants to be the Latino's leader in Oz. I don't think that he's cut out for that in his current mental state. But you've got to remember as well that Chico is still in Oz as well, a loyal soldier to El Cid originally, as well as to Morales since his arrival. Were Miguel to try and assume the leadership for himself, I can't see Chico being willing to follow Miguel in the same way, especially having tried to kill him in the past. Not that that might even be an issue, as we see Jorge Vasquez waiting for Miguel as he leaves the laundry room and asking what he was talking to Burr for, Miguel making an excuse about wanting to borrow some laundry detergent. Jorge tells Miguel that they haven't forgotten about him shanking Carlo Ricardo, a callback to the series 3 finale, which gets Miguel's attention much like when someone calls Marty McFly a chicken. Jorge tells Miguel that once Chico returns from the hospital, he and Chico are going to fuck Miguel up. But Miguel is prepared to throw her down right now, asking Jorge why wait for Chico to return. Miguel taunts Jorge to attack him, saying that he has nothing to lose or gain, and says let's do this puto essentially calling Jorge a whore. Miguel charges Jorge, who's brandishing a shank in his right hand, but Miguel pulls his own shank from inside his waistband, so he's led Jorge into a false sense of security a moment ago, making out that he was unprepared for a fight. 
As the other inmates notice the fight, Jazz talking to Max Sands, who's apparently earned himself some time in the M-City cage, Miguel manoeuvres behind Jorge and slices his neck and throat with a shank. Jorge gushing blood as he collapses to the floor, twitching. As the shouting continues, CEO's run in to apprehend Miguel, but he swipes out with a shank cutting the hand of an officer, something which gets a pleasing reaction from Keller, while Ribado looks a little more concerned for Miguel. The numbers game eventually catches up to Miguel, who's struck in the back by a CO and held down on the ground, Miguel eventually releasing the shank from his grip, and we get a POV shot to close the scene as Augustus describes the shank that Miguel has just used, which is known as the Gillette bayonet, whereby the blade from a disposable razor is removed from its plastic casing and attached to either a pen or a pencil. Saying that it's designed to slice rather than pierce, it can be just as dangerous to the user as well, as attaching the blade can sometimes force you to cut yourself, Augustus taking one for the team as he demonstrates. Presumably someone will have signed off on allowing the use of Gillette's name on the show. We've discussed before about having to get brand names and logos legally cleared, but I can't imagine that Gillette were too thrilled about their brand being the one associated with the use of deadly weapons, even if its name does lend itself nicely alongside the use of Bayonet. Prison Lingo was a segment that I considered early on in the podcast's run, but it's something that I abandoned fairly quickly, as whilst rewatching the show, there isn't actually as much prison jargon as what I remember there being, and what is there is actually quite self-explanatory. Over in solitary, Miguel has been returned to his cell as we see him sat on the toilet. As he goes to flush, he looks into the bowl and... Oh no, Miguel, don't do it. Nope, too late. He's got a big lump of shit in his hands, which he mushes flat and then starts to spread all over the walls and the bars of the cell. He then turns his focus to the mirror, and it's at this point I got to thinking, this is a lot of shit that he has here. So either Miguel has done a monumental bowel movement upon his return, or we've had another passage of time and he's been storing this up over a period of days, and presumably means that his cell fucking stinks. I'm not wanting to dwell too much on how this shit was created, as obviously Kirk isn't smearing his actual shit around the place, but it appears to have the consistency of wet dog food. A seer, the actor whom goes uncredited, notices the shit on the walls as he looks through the cell hatch, as well as Miguel who's now smearing shit on his own face, so it's clear that Miguel has suffered something of a mental breakdown. Had he not started to wipe shit on his face, he could have maybe played it off as some sort of coping mechanism to keep people from bothering him, i.e. them not wanting to go to the shitty cell, but that last part there just hammers home that Miguel cannot go any lower other than committing suicide, something which he has already attempted in the past. So this is just the latest truly tragic moment in this character's story. Rather than deal with the situation, the CEO closes the hatch and heads off on his way passing Busmali's cell as he goes. I actually thought that that was a really good way of transitioning from Miguel's story into Busmali's part of the episode. Excellent work, Steve Buscemi. So obviously Norma can't visit with Busmali's right now, so it's fallen to Ribado to deliver the news about Busmali's being holed up in solitary, as well as explaining the circumstances as to how it happened, as we see a flashback of the water pipe bursting and flooding their pod from the last episode. Norma asks how long Boos Malis will be isolated. Well, she actually calls him by his given name, which you would expect as they are soon to be wed. But Ribado tells her that it's hard to say, but to leave it with him and he'll see what he can do. Norma thanks Ribado, even calling him Mr. Ribado, which I thought was a really sweet touch. 
she's so respectful towards him, as the two of them both admit to missing Boost Mallards. Over in Leo's lovely new office, which we see now has a nice new lamp with crystal lampshade, Rebido pleads Boost Mallards' case, saying that Boost Mallards had started digging a tunnel before agreeing that he wouldn't dig any more. So what he'd done was true, from a certain point of view. Leo calls that a lovely story, but asks Rebido why he should believe him. Rebido says, Look, come on, Warden, you know me. I've been here 35 years. I've seen murders, riots, had a hundred different cellmates, but not once have I stepped up on someone else's behalf, and that he survived all this time by being uninvolved, and says that Boosmalis deserves better. Having heard Rebido's heartfelt speech, and knowing deep down that Rebido is right, Leo agrees to release Boost Mallers, and tells him once again, no more goddamn tunnels. Cut to M-City, where Boost Mallers returns still wearing the same clothes he was on the night that he was placed in solitary, but before he hits the showers, he stops by his pod to thank Rebido for getting him out, and that he doesn't know how he'll ever repay him. Rebido, however, tells him that that's nonsense and that he owed him, and as Boost Mallers washes his face, repeats Leo's demand of no more tunnels. Boosmalis admits that during his stay in solitary he had time to reflect on his obsession with digging, and I like the use of obsession because that is very much what it is. Since he arrived in Oz back in Series 2, this is the third tunnel that he's dug during that time. The first one of course he and Rebido managed to get away with as having been forced to dig on the orders of Mark Mack, while the second one saw him make his escape along with Miguel. Boosmalis' original conviction saw him sentenced to 10 years, but eligible for parole in four, which would have brought us roughly up to the end of this fourth series, if you count the two halves as two separate years considering the six-month time jump. So had Boost Mallers been able to get his digging obsession in check early on, he'd have probably secured a legitimate release at the end of this series, and would have been free to go and stand outside Miss Sally's house all he wanted to. He likens tunnels to being like extended graves, but says that he's far from dead, Rebido telling him that because of Norma, he has every reason to live. Boosmalis plants a kiss on Rebido's cheek before heading to the phones to call Norma, as a content Rebido chuckles away to close the scene. While I did quite like Rebido going to bat for his friend, it's just another short-term story that ultimately has no repercussions. Boosmalis is no worse off for having dug the tunnel rather than eventually escaping through it. He spent a short time in solitary, a very short time by the looks of things, but doesn't seem to have suffered any further punishment, much like how he didn't suffer any after returning to Oz following the escape. He did serve a short time in solitary then as well, but to the best of my knowledge, no further time was added to his sentence, nor was any added to Miguel's for that matter. It just seems to be another one of those lost-in-limbo storylines that have plagued Series 4B, either filling time and plugging holes en route to the show's possible conclusion as it awaited news on returning for a fifth series. Cut to a staff meeting where the usual crew have been joined by some lad in a white doctor's coat, as McManus reminds us all of the Weigert Corporation developing the ageing pill and how the inmates are supposed to age at an accelerated rate and yada yada yada. You remember all this silliness from the last episode. And he says all of this in quite a condescending manner. He also says that the use of the drug invalidates the whole purpose of their jobs. He gets some support from Murphy, which you would expect as they go back a long way, although Murphy does make a good point about how even if you're a murderer serving the equivalent of a 20-year sentence in a shorter time frame, that doesn't change them being a murderer, 
while McManus says that the drug doesn't factor in rehabilitation, and that it's the ultimate admission of their failure, a line which he directs squarely at Gloria, and that they need to pull the plug on the whole experiment right now. Having sat patiently listening to McManus run down her entire project, Gloria fires back, saying that it's typical of McManus to turn the whole thing into a self-righteous crusade due to not wanting the O'Reilly brothers involved to begin with. Pete joins the debate, disagreeing with Gloria and saying that McManus has made some valid points. Claire throws her hat into the ring, asking who there can actually claim to have turned any of the inmates' lives around, which is an excellent point. The only one that you could argue to have made some sort of improvement before they went and fucked it all up was Poet when he got released back in Series 2 to be published in Unheard America. Jason Kramer secured a release in the first half of this series, but that was on a technicality to do with the judge at his trial rather than having been rehabilitated in any way. Aside from those two, no one is in a better position now than what they were when they arrived or were in when the show started. Lepresti adds weight to Claire's claims, saying that all they do is move people through the system. They bring them in, they lock them up, they let them out. It's actually an excellent point about the broken prison system, and that at least with this pill the staff don't get stabbed in the process. Murphy tells Lepresti, and I'm not going to try and do a New York accent here, that if he doesn't like the job then he can go back to selling used cars. Which I don't know about you, but I wouldn't trust Lepresti to sell me anything, let alone a car. Lepresti tells Murphy not to be an arsehole, while McManus is all, see, see, this isn't just me, to Gloria, and she's blaming him for instigating the whole thing, as Leo puts his foot down and shuts everyone up, saying that he'll call the commissioner and express their concerns, but until they make a call on whether to pull the plug or not, the project will continue, as he brings the meeting to a close, as McManus and Gloria continue to exchange glances. Over in the infirmary, the test subjects are having their weekly checkup as Gloria takes Ryan's blood pressure, while he inquires about how soon they're likely to see any effects. Gloria reminds him and us that the drug hadn't been tested on humans before this, but the rats that were tested began to age in about three days. Ryan asks if he gets old and wrinkled, will she still love him, asking the second in a more whispered tone. But rather than tell him, no, you had my husband killed, fuck off, she just simply asks for the next patient. Gloria's silence speaking volumes right there. Cyril is next to be tested, who when questioned says that he has a tummy ache, reaffirming his childlike qualities. Gloria begins to examine him before we cut to M-City where the lights are coming on to begin a new day. We also see that the Chinese refugees are still sleeping in the M-City common room for the time being. We'll come back to them later, but their story completely ground to a halt after Bian's murder. Murphy heads up the stairs and calls for the count as we pan across to Ryan and Cyril's pod. Ryan is first out of bed, jumping down from the top bunk and telling Cyril to get up as Cyril continues to lay on his right side, facing the wall. Ryan tells Cyril again to get up as he washes his hands, but as he looks in the mirror he turns around horrified to see that Cyril's hair has turned from blonde to a mixture of silver and pure white, as Cyril tells Ryan that he doesn't feel too good. With Cyril's hair as long as it is, this new colour makes him look like he's in some sort of rock band who are past their prime but still able to make a living off touring small shitty venues. They peaked with their debut album, but their popularity quickly dwindled from album 2 onwards. But they've still got people coming to hear the early hits, one of those type of bands. 
actually, what might be even more accurate? It looks a little bit like someone who was in a hair metal band who tried to go grunge in the 90s, and it didn't quite work out for them. Having examined Cyril again, Gloria explains to Ryan that Cyril has begun to age, whereas Ryan isn't showing any signs of aging because his body might metabolise slower, or that he might be in the placebo group. A concerned Ryan says that the whole idea of this was that he and Cyril go through the experiment together, thereby getting out of Oz together. Ryan asks Gloria to stop giving Cyril the drug, but Gloria refuses, saying that they agreed to be part of the process. But Ryan says that everything he's ever done has fucked up Cyril's life, and that he's not going to sit by and watch his brother disintegrate. They continue to argue about having agreed to be part of the experiment as Ryan tries to take Cyril back to MC, but Gloria has off as a moustache escort Ryan out as she keeps Cyril in for observation. It doesn't really get that much attention here, but that's quite the admission from Ryan as to his actions having a direct impact on Cyril. We've talked before about Ryan using and manipulating people to get what he wants no matter the cost, but when it comes to his brother, Ryan clearly still blames himself for what happened with Cyril's accident. Other times he might be able to justify his actions in his own mind and shift the blame away from himself, but what happened to Cyril and the life that he's led since then will always be Ryan's cross to bear. Over in M-City, Ryan is confiding in Beecher which is the first time in a long time that we've seen these two interact with each other. In fact, I can't even remember the last time these two had a conversation one-on-one -on -one as Ryan has been running with Keller for some time now. Ryan asks if Beecher saw Cyril's hair, Beecher saying that he did and that it was pretty bizarre, as Ryan describes the experiment of being out of whack and that they need to round up everyone else involved with it and convince them to drop out. Beecher, however, says that this is typical of Ryan, going back on his word at the first sign of trouble whereas Beecher has given his word and that he's sticking with it, even though he admits that he is terrified. Ryan is still determined to talk with the others, but Beecher doesn't feel it will do much good, and says that guys like Robson, Hoyt and Wick are used to playing Russian roulette with their lives, and that they're likely to laugh in Ryan's face. Wick Beecher? Who's this Wick you speak of? I think you'll find his name is pronounced Nuggets. Beecher and Ryan are having this conversation on the balcony outside of the classroom, and as Beecher walks away, I've never noticed before that there's a phone on the wall outside. I assume it's not like the other phones, it's probably one for the staff to use in emergencies, but I've just never noticed it there before. Later in the day, it's a packed house in front of the TV. A common room sellout, if you will, for today's Up Your Ante. Even the refugees are watching today's episode, as today's special guest is none other than Miss Sally herself, Whitney Allen. Whitney, of course, has been on the show as Miss Sally for a couple of years now, but in that time she had also appeared uncredited as Miss Sally in Homicide the Movie in 2000, the TV movie version of Homicide Life on the Street, which also featured Oz alumni Jelko Ivanic, John Cedar, Granville Adams, Reggie Caffey, Austin Pendleton, Terry Sapika, as well as Eamon Walker and Sean Weitzel. It also featured an appearance by Ellen McKelduff, who we'll meet in Series 5. So, quick rundown of who we've got here. You've got Augustus, Omar, Poet, and Ribado in the front row. Morales, Don Zangi, Mario Seggio, Chucky, Keller, and Beecher in row two. Fiona and Tony Masters in row three. And right at the back of the seats, you've got Max Sands. While for the refugees, it's standing room only. I'll talk more about it later on, but it seems a bit weird how Beecher and Keller are sat next to each other in this scene, considering they were at Loggerhead's last episode about each other's involvement with Ronnie whose death, by the way, has not been mentioned once this entire episode. 
not watching the show are Nuggets and Hoyt, who are sat at a nearby table. Nuggets cluing Hoyt in on how Gloria has informed Nuggets that he has pubic lice. While it's possible he could have caught the lice from sharing clothes with someone, or sharing a towel with an infected person, the most common cause of pubic lice is through sexual activity, which would mean that Nuggets has been a busy boy off-screen. He motions over to the O'Reilly brothers, who are passing through M-City, and comments on Cyril's hair turning white being freaky. Hoyt jokes about how at least that won't happen to them, which I'll admit was pretty funny, as Nuggets admits that other than the lice, he feels great, and that he thinks he might have been one of the five that got the placebo. No sooner has he said that and turned forward, he collapses forward and bangs his head on the table. Hoyt asks what he's doing before pulling Nuggets up from the table where Nuggets' nose is bleeding profusely, and as Hoyt calls for help from Murphy, Nuggets falls to the floor dead. This was way funnier than it should have been. Nuggets literally goes from talking one second, turning forward, and then just dropping dead the next. It's so daft. What it does mean, though, is that this has definitely put an end to the experiment now, as we see McManus heading down to Gloria's office to speak with her, passing the men from the coroner's office who are wheeling out a bagged-up Nuggets. Gloria. Come to gloat, Tim. No, to apologize. And you were right on the money when you said that I turned our disagreement into something else. So I'm sure you were acting out on the best of intentions. Was I? My answer to everything that walks through that door is pop a pill in his mouth. I don't even try to heal people anymore. I'm a drug dealer. <sighs> Better that than I... Uh... Fuck, I don't even know what I am anymore. Except tired and hungry. Good night. Tim. Yeah. That rain check for dinner? I'd like to cash it in. Really? You sure? Yeah. I don't want to be alone tonight. So McMahon is finally getting the date that he's been pursuing. It might have been all, are you sure you don't want to leave it a little while? But you know inside he's dancing. We've spoken before as well about McManus being at odds with his own principles at times during this fourth series, and even he seems to be becoming aware of it as he couldn't even finish his own thought here. With Gloria having stayed quiet when questioned about still loving Ryan should he become an old codger and with a previous admission to Pete about loving Ryan, is this date with McManus more of a testing the waters to see where her head is truly at, rather than exploring a potential relationship with McManus? Only time will tell, but this definitely felt more of a friends comforting each other rather than an actual dinner date. Or at least that's how Gloria will be viewing it, I'm sure. At night, Cyril asks Ryan about how their mum used to sing to them, but Ryan asks him to go to sleep. Cyril, however, can't remember what the song was, which prompts Ryan to get down from his bunk and scoot up alongside Cyril, holding him in his arms as he sings a rendition of Tu Ralu Ralu Ral, that's an Irish lullaby, to close out Act 1. While this is a lovely moment between two brothers, especially with how they hold each other close to one another, Dean Winter's singing is really bad. He sounds absolutely knackered, and all he's done is get down from the top bunk. I'd even go so far as to say, and I know this is going to be controversial, that his singing is almost as bad as his acting because, and I'm gonna say this quietly so as to not really anger anybody, 
In fact, I'm just going to step away from the mic for a second, so just bear with me. All I'll say is that Dean Winters is not a very good actor. I'm sorry, but I just don't think he is. I think his delivery is often quite wooden. I think he needs other stronger actors to carry him through scenes. And I don't think there have been many moments where you can say, wow, he was great in that scene. There have been moments where he's been good, but none where I would say he has been great. Of course, that is just my opinion. I get that Ryan is a popular character, but being popular doesn't necessarily translate to being a quality character or a quality actor. I mean, Ricky Gervais is popular, but that doesn't mean that he's a good stand-up comedian. Donald Trump was popular, but that doesn't mean that he was a good president. Granted, when the show started, Dean's acting resume was somewhat limited, but even since the show started, he's appeared on New York Undercover, he'd been on a couple of episodes of Millennium, he's appeared in Sex and the City, he was one of the main cast on Law and Order Special Victims Unit, so he'd had opportunities to learn, it's not like this is his first rodeo. But more often than not, and certainly in the more recent ones, episodes seem to take a dip whenever Ryan is on screen. Don't get me wrong, if you like Dean Winters as an actor, if you like Ryan as a character, that is completely fine. All I'm saying is that I personally don't think that Dean Winters is very good. And I certainly don't think that he's a very good singer. Remember when we were little? Mom would sing to us? Let's try and sleep, Cyril. I can't remember what song. gets underway in the classroom where the Muslims are holding group and welcoming Leroy into the fold, or Salah Uddin as he will now be known, which Saeed tells us means honouring the faith. Saeed's beard here is looking a bit scraggly in places. There is a common misconception surrounding Islam that practising Muslims are forbidden from shaving at all, which isn't strictly true, although there does seem to be some grey area on the subject. In some circles, it is believed that Muslim men are obligated to keep their beards as a way of differentiating them from non-believers, known as the kuffar, even going so far as to suggest that styling the beard may lead to Muslim men to imitate the bad deeds of non-believers. On the flip side of the coin, a number of Islamic scholars agree that the moustache should be trimmed so as to not touch the lip for hygiene reasons, and that beards be kept to an appropriate length, 
often no more than the length of a fist. Of course, Saeed is a Muslim convert, so perhaps the rules are a little different for him as he has kept his beard relatively short throughout the show so far, but it could be indicative of his mind being elsewhere and not keeping up with his grooming regime, or perhaps of him moving away from the person that he was prior to killing Adebisi. The Muslims chant in unison Allah al-Akbar, God is the greatest, as we then see a flashback of the video footage of one of Adebisi's wild parties, and then cut to the library where Leroy, which I'll continue to refer to him as for reasons that will become clear in a moment, says that he wants to talk to Saeed about some things, but admits that he's afraid to do so. Saeed tells Leroy that he must feel free to ask him anything now that he's part of the group. Leroy broaches the subject of Adebisi, which stops Saeed in his tracks, so when he says that Leroy can ask him about anything, he actually means anything but that. After Leroy asks as well, the buzzer sounds in the background in an incredible bit of timing, almost like Saeed's angry alarm has just sounded. There are things I want to talk to you about, but I'm afraid. Don't be my brother. From now on, you must feel free to ask me anything. Even about Adebisi. Leroy admits that Adebisi was a bad man, but he was also his friend, and accuses Saeed of plotting to murder him, something which Saeed strenuously denies claiming Adebisi's death was never his goal and that he was trying to save him, something which Adebisi didn't want. Said says that Adebisi felt as though he knew what he wanted from life, and that after he had satisfied his appetite and realised that his desires were empty and that he had nothing, the only desire he had left was to die. As Leroy asks how Said knows that, he tells him that you only need to look into a man's face to see if his time has come, as Said then turns away to leave. We've spoken before about how the spirit of Adebisi lingers in Oz, metaphorically, not literally, of course, but each passing mention of him really hits home how the show, and especially I, miss him, as without him, the show doesn't really have that one defining villain anymore. There have been groups formed comprising of a number of bad apples, but not one of them truly rules the roost like Adebisi did. Whether that's down to the rushed writing that we've talked about or not, that could be a possibility, or then again, maybe it could be argued that the show should have concluded with Adebisi's death in some form. Cut to the kitchen, where Robson approaches Leroy and refers to him by that name. So as we mentioned the last episode, when Leroy was smirking to himself upon arriving in the hall, this joining the Muslims is one big act, and he and Robson are still very much working together to kill Saeed. Robson mentions that here, saying that they had a deal, but when asked when he's going to carry out the kill, Leroy explains that Saeed is constantly surrounded by the other members of the group, and that he's waiting to get Saeed alone. Later in the day, Leroy approaches Arif who's guarding Saeed's pod as he sleeps. Arif seems to have somehow been listening to the podcast retroactively, as I mentioned last episode about how Saeed suffering from hypertension hasn't been mentioned for quite some time. And wouldn't you believe it, he mentions that exact thing to Leroy right here, something which Leroy was apparently unaware of. Saeed, of course, having his heart troubles a couple of years previously. Leroy offers to take over from Arif so that he can take a break, which Arif does, saying that he has to take a leak. As he goes, Arif mentions that Saeed should be asleep for about another 20 minutes, so either Arif is planning on taking a very long piss or a very slow walk to the bathrooms, but it also gives Leroy ample time to commit the deed, as he enters the pod and pulls a shank from his back pocket. Leroy going with a standard knife rather than fashioning his own Gillette bayonet. Leroy raises the blade over a still-sleeping Saeed, 
but hesitation kicks in and it's a good eight or nine seconds until Saeed begins to open his eyes. He's completely unaware of what Leroy was about to do though, as Leroy had already begun to lower the blade. A hazy-eyed Saeed asks Leroy if something is wrong, but Leroy calms him and tells him that he's safe. A beat gathers as Leroy exits the pod and makes his way over to the railing where, look out below, he's gonna, he's gonna puke! Which he does right down onto the card game being played by Ryan, Beecher and Cloutier, Beecher being particularly annoyed as the scene closes. So despite having what is probably going to be his best opportunity to murder Saeed, Leroy appears to have had a change of heart, possibly realising that what Saeed told him about not intending to kill Adebisi to be true, or perhaps seeing that murdering Saeed would make him no better than Adebisi was, and that maybe he is actually looking to leave that life behind after all. Over in the library, Omar is complaining to Poet and Augustus about Berg dragging his feet with regards to making a move against Chucky and Morales, and that they should just kill them themselves. Augustus tells Omar to relax and that Burr knows what he's doing, and when the time is right he'll make his move. Switching topics, Omar notices Vehu enter the library, saying that he'd heard that he was in Oz but he hadn't seen him, Poet suggesting that Vehu likes to keep a low profile, which is certainly one way of explaining away Vehu's absence for the last two years. Omar tells Poet that he wants to meet Vehu, which Poet is more than happy to instigate, calling Vehu over and shaking hands with him before introducing Omar. Appearing a little starstruck, Omar offers his own handshake which Vehu just ignores, and mentions the infamous Bulls game where Vehu scored 48 points, a callback to Augustus meeting Vehu back in Series 1. Vehu isn't willing to exchange pleasantries though, turning his attention to Poet and inquiring about what stock he has. Poet mentions that he thought that Vehu was off the drugs, but Vehu tells him that that was when he was trying to get parole, looking towards Augustus and saying that he's now stuck in Oz for another seven years, and that he may as well start using again, and tells Poet to give him some tip. Omar continues to try and get Vehu's attention, telling him, hey, we can get you anything you need, and tells Vehu that he's his man as Poet hands off some drugs. Later on under the MC stairs, Omar is giving out to Poet about Vehu disrespecting him, saying that Vehu looked at him, like he isn't even there, like I'm a fucking glass of water or something. Christ Omar is fucking annoying. Not only does that first point not make any fucking sense, how do you look at something as if it isn't there, but does he really think Vayu hasn't been told that bull story a million times before? Poet tries to explain it away as Vayu having other stuff on his mind, but an erratic Omar reckons that he has a problem whereby he doesn't impress on people. As Poet asks what Omar plans to do, Omar pulls a blade out of his pocket, the knife count for this episode having now reached three, and says that not only are people going to remember him, but they're going to fear him, much like how Poet is right now as Omar waves the knife around in his face. Omar makes his way out from under the stairs, approaching the group of inmates watching TV, looking as though he's going to try and stab one of them. He focuses in on Chucky, but quickly changes his mind as Chucky tells him to get the fuck out of the way which is probably a wise decision. Even if he were to stab Chucky, it would probably take a bit more than that to take him down properly. Plus Chucky has his henchmen nearby, so the numbers aren't exactly in Omar's favour. He turns his attention to the upper level where he sees McManus at the top of the stairs, and makes his way up looking as though he wants to ask McManus a question. An unsuspecting McManus turns towards Omar, who plunges the knife into McManus' midsection. 
Murphy and another CO, who I think is Dagnasty, are quick to drag Omar off of McManus, but in doing so end up throwing him off the balcony at the rear side like they're eliminating him from a battle royal. As Murphy attends to McManus, we see Omar, who is absolutely fine apparently, despite taking a fall of a good 10 feet or so to the floor seconds earlier, being escorted away as the inmates give him their adulation, and a shot McManus clutches his bleeding stomach. This particular shank is called the blunt. It's fairly standard. A prisoner palms a hunk of metal working in the shop, and then rubs the metal against the stone wall. In ours, we got plenty of those, shaping it into a blade. The beauty of this baby is that it causes as much internal damage as possible. Over in Unit J, Alvin and Johnny are playing cards when Johnny gets told that he has a visitor. He asks who it is and is told that it's Nancy Mears, his old partner who masqueraded as his girlfriend, Kima, during the undercover operation. Alvin notices Johnny's surprise that she's come to visit, Johnny saying that she'd refuse to do so up until today. They meet up in the visiting room, Johnny looking pleased to see Nancy, but Nancy is stone-faced with her arms folded. She is completely cut off, as if she's been forced to do this rather than actually wanting to. In fact, that's exactly what's happened. Lieutenant Schmand has ordered her to visit Johnny, which drains all the joy from Johnny's face as he apologises for her being forced into it. He also apologises for lying to her during the undercover operation, saying that he got so deep into the persona of Desmond Mobey that he allowed the situation to get funky, and I was half expecting a Bootsy Collins-like baseline to kick in there. Nancy half-heartedly accepts Johnny's apology and goes to leave, but Johnny blocks her path, asking if that's it, and asks for Nancy's forgiveness. Nancy admits that being a cop sucks, and that the public think that they're brutal, indifferent, insulated and corrupt, and that she has to fight against that image every day, and that every day a scumbag fucks it up, lumping Johnny in with said scumbags. So no, she doesn't forgive him, but promises that she'll forget that he ever existed, and then leaves the visiting room parting by telling Johnny to make sure that he tells Lieutenant Schman that she was there if he asks. Decent little scene this one, emphasising how Johnny's actions have consequences beyond that of his immediate family, who still haven't visited him and I don't think that they ever do. Back in Unit J, Alvin asks Clayton if he wants to play some cards. I guess they're still waiting on that pool table to arrive. Apparently Alvin is the last person that Clayton wants to play cards with though which prompts Alvin to tell Clayton that he needs to accept that the two of them and Johnny share a bond, that being that they were all cops who for one reason or another copped out. Clayton, however, sees things a little differently, claiming to be a political prisoner incarcerated by an unjust system, as Alvin hits back calling him a punk with bad aim. As Alvin walks away, Clayton tells him that he's a dead man, which stops Alvin, whose demeanour changes, asking Clayton if that's a threat. Clayton saying that it's hardly a valentine, as Alvin once again calls Clayton a punk and walks away as the scene fades. Over in M-City, Morales is sat playing his own game of cards with Chucky and a couple of their lower level goons, as Morales keeps looking towards the refugees' beds where Gonjin is staring a hole right through him. Morales shouts over to him to pack it in as Chucky tells Morales to relax, Morales saying that he feels as though Gonjin is putting a curse on him. Murphy approaches Gonjin, who's summoned for a meeting with Leo, passing Morales on the way out, who wonders what that could be about. Over in Leo's office, which this time opens with a very prominent shot of his skills of justice statue, Gonjin tells him that Morales and Chucky killed Bian, 
which I wouldn't say is true. Chucky wasn't really involved. Morales kind of took the reins on that one. Leo asks Gonjin if he has any proof to back up his allegation, Gonjin meekly shaking his head. So unfortunately for him, there's nothing that Leo can do. The curse of the lack of evidence striking once again as Gao tells Gonjin that they've asked him there so that he can prepare the others. Gonjin takes that to mean that he and the other refugees are being sent back to China, something which is due to happen, but Gao informs them that this is about Jaya Kameen, the man behind the people smuggling operation, who luckily was being tried locally on an unrelated drug charge, which he has been found guilty of. He's to be tried separately for the people smuggling, but until that happens he's to be held at Oz, rather than one of the other 40-odd prisons that the state apparently has where they didn't send the refugees before. Leo tells Gonjin that Jaya is going to be kept segregated until the refugees are gone, which begs the question of why they're even telling Gonjin this. If you hadn't told him, would he have ever found out? Most probably not. Gonjin asks for a meeting with Jaya, promising that he won't hurt him even if he wanted to, calling Jaya a killer, something of which he definitely isn't. We then get the crime flashback of Jaya Kameen, who is arrested heading to a car as he leaves a restaurant in New York's Chinatown area, and is convicted of possession and distribution of a controlled substance, and has been sentenced to 15 years, up for parole in 5. If you want to visit the location of where this crime flashback was filmed, head on over to Doyers Street, which is slightly east of Columbus Park and links Chatham Square and Pell Street. The restaurant that Jaya is leaving is the Nomwa Tea Parlour, which is still there at the time of recording with the exact same exterior, so head on down there if you're ever in Chinatown. The Hipkey Beauty Salon that we see in this flashback, however, is no longer there, or has at the very least rebranded as the Baishi Beauty Salon. One minor note here as well is how the prisoner number is 01J rather than 01K. You'll remember the conversation between Bian and Morales and how the Chinese people state their last name first, meaning that Jaya Kameen's name would be Kameen Jaya in the Western style. Unless specifically told to do so, in China it is considered extremely poor etiquette to call someone by only their first name, and you should never call someone by only their last name. I'm only going to refer to Jaya by that name as that's how it's done on the show. So Jaya Kameen is played by Michael Gregory Dong, often credited as MG Gong, and occasionally as Michael Delmar. An accomplished martial artist and dancer, Michael earned his first acting credit in 1993, appearing in Sister Act 2 back in The Habit, while in 1995 he appeared as one of the dancing Itos on The Tonight Show, a running gag during the trial of O.J. Simpson. Also in 1995, Michael appeared as Fear in the video to Madonna's Human Nature single. Michael has also worked on videos and tours for artists such as Michael and Janet Jackson, Diana Ross, Celine Dion and Prince. In 1996, Michael appeared in a minor role in Eraser, before appearing here on Oz. We see Gonjin waiting in the visiting room as Gao escorts Jaya down the hallway. We also find out that Gonjin's surname is Wong which I don't think has been referenced before. Jaya offers a handshake, but is promptly told by Gao that there's to be no physical contact. Gao lays down the ground rules for the meeting, those being that it will be no more than five minutes, and that the accompanying officer can shut it down before that if needs be, as Gonjin talks about how he's heard how Jaya's parents left China to escape what he calls the horrors, and asks how Jaya can treat his own people like dirt. He admits he wants to kill Jaya, but that doing so will not bring Bian back to his wife and son, 
and tells Jaya that the men in Oz are not honourable and asks if Jaya is, and if he is, then there is something that he can do to make up for the bad. Gonjin leans in and whispers that he wants Jaya to kill Morales, asking if he'll swear to do so, but Jaya doesn't give a response, as we cut to him arriving in MC, glaring at Morales as he passes. I'm assuming that Gonjin gave him a vague description of what Morales looks like, otherwise that's some very lucky guesswork. We overhear the news detailing the fate of the refugees, of which there are apparently only 35 now, to close out Act 2. The State Department, under increasing pressure from the Beijing government, has decided not to grant asylum to the 35 remaining Chinese illegals whose freighter crashed off Jeb Island Sound. The refugees will be deported to China tomorrow, where they face an uncertain future. Business News is next with Marshall Levy. Act 3 then opens up in solitary where we see Supreme being released from his cell as he makes his return to M-City, ending a stay of six months plus in the unit. Poet makes Bear aware of Supreme's arrival, Bear mentioning that he forgot that Supreme was in Oz, referring to Supreme by his given surname. Poet says that Supreme got there a couple of months ago, which is at odds with the timeline, as Supreme passes Keller and Beecher as Keller and Supreme give each other a hard stare. Augustus brings Bear up to speed a little more, mentioning that Supreme has been on trial for killing two other inmates, Nate Shemin and Mondo Brown. The Supreme then makes his way over to Bear to try and introduce himself, but Bear tells him to get the fuck away from him, which Supreme eventually does. So clearly there is a history between the two of them already, or at the very least whoever Supreme worked for on the outside. Augustus acquires about the hostilities between the two of them as Bear asks him if he ever wonders about how the cops knew where Augustus was on the night he got arrested. Augustus has apparently been under the impression that the cops must have had him under surveillance in the lead up to it, but Bear reveals that Supreme ratted on Augustus to avoid an arrest for an old Warren, Bear saying that if it wasn't for Supreme, Augustus wouldn't be sat in that wheelchair, nor would he be in Oz. Those two things aren't necessarily linked to each other, Augustus had his quote-unquote accident due to shooting a cop in the melee that was his arrest. That's not something that Supreme caused, that's entirely on Augustus. Had Augustus' arrest not involved the cop shooting, he could have just as likely ended up in Oz as an able-bodied person. Having said that, it's a good excuse for Augustus and Bear to have some beef with Supreme, and it's clear that Augustus hadn't even contemplated that someone may have been behind the police showing up at his door that night. He's had the wind knocked out of him completely with this news. Despite having only just arrived back in M-City, Supreme is quickly looking to form an alliance with Chucky and Morales, who offers Supreme a cut of the drug operation if he kills Burr, something which Supreme doesn't hesitate over agreeing to. He says that he's going to need some time though in order to get others on his side, Morales telling him fine, but not to leave it too long as Burr is planning a move of his own, telling Supreme that he needs to snap Burr's neck before he snaps theirs. Supreme looks down on Burr and Poet from on high as we then cut to the showers where Augustus is washing himself, resting in another chair with his wheelchair off to the side. Supreme enters, saying to Augustus that being crippled must suck, Augustus sarcastically telling him that it's actually a pleasure cruise. The two of them talk about their history with Burr, Supreme saying that he and Burr were from the same corner, while Augustus has known Burr his whole life, and that Burr took care of him and his family when Augustus' dad was killed in Vietnam which I think is the first time that Augustus has mentioned his father. He's mentioned his Uncle Bilbo a bunch of times in his monologues, but never his father as far as I can recall. Going off of real-world ages and timelines for a second, Augustus would be in and around his late 30s here, and if his dad was killed in Vietnam, that would mean his dad was killed when Augustus was 12 at the latest, 
the Vietnam War ending in 1975, so Augustus lost his dad at a relatively young age. Supreme tells Augustus that he knows about Augustus' love for Bear, which is why he needs to let him know that Morales and Chucky want Bear dead. I may have cleaned that up a little as Supreme uses some other terms to identify the two of them. Augustus asks if Supreme is so worried about Bear, then why doesn't he tell him himself? Supreme saying that Bear won't let him anywhere near him. Augustus asks whether or not that surprises Supreme, who claims to have never done anything to backhand Burr. As Augustus transfers himself back to his wheelchair, he asks if Supreme has ever done the same for him, Supreme sounding confused and asking Augustus to speak clearly, as Augustus accuses Supreme of being responsible for putting him in Oz in the wheelchair, something which Supreme calls bullshit. He continues to protest his innocence as Augustus tells him that Burr found out that it was Supreme that ratted him out to the cops, and he then begins to ram Supreme with his chair. That may have seemed a better idea in Augustus' head, as Supreme is easily able to fend him off with a push kick. Seizing the advantage, Supreme tips Augustus' chair over and begins to lay in kicks and stomps to Augustus' back, kicking him six times in total, as he then grabs a towel and exits the showers, leaving Augustus laying on the floor. This scene did really well in hitting home just how much harder life in Oz for Augustus than all the other inmates, from him having to use an extra chair just in order to bathe himself, to how easily Supreme was able to lay down a beating on him. It was similar to the scene in which Bruno Gergen and the then Desmond Mobey were able to get into a position where they could have thrown Augustus down the elevator shaft. While that was ultimately a setup by Mobey, Augustus was unsettled in that scene, whereas here he is completely fearless, which is another interesting contrast. Augustus has never let the fact that he is wheelchair-bound define him. It's a part of his character, but it's not the main characteristic. But this scene showed that he has it much harder in Oz than the others, especially when he's been housed in Oz's toughest unit. Over in the library, we see Supreme and Keller sat reading books at the same table, although there is a fair amount of distance between them. Burr enters, closely followed by a big lad who actually has to duck under the door for him to get in, and sits down with Supreme. Takes a lot of balls to beat a fella in a wheelchair. I didn't touch Hill. Just like you didn't kill those two other inmates, Sheeman and Brown. I'm innocent of that. There's others who gotta pay for that crime. I suppose you're also innocent of shooting Craig Daniels. No. That motherfucker laughed at me. He got what he deserved. Keller picks up on Supreme mentioning to Bear about how others have to pay for the crime of killing Shemin and Mondo, as we cut to Keller in Ryan's pod informing Ryan that Supreme somehow knows that it was them that murdered the two of them. Ryan asks how could Supreme know that, he hasn't told him and neither has Keller, as Keller says that maybe he figured it out, offering no explanation as to how exactly, and also mentions about Shemin and Mondo being guys that Beecher was fucking. Ryan pointing out that perhaps Supreme thinks that's why Keller did it, but which ultimately leaves him in the clear. Keller asks if Ryan is looking to hang him out to dry, but Ryan offers to speak with Supreme to find out exactly what he knows, saying, you can trust me, K-boy, as Keller says that he has no other choice. Ryan, I'll say this one last time. Stop trying to make K-boy a thing. Cut to the computer room where Ryan and Supreme are sat at their respective computers, Ryan is bashing away at his mouse and monitor and saying, Fuck, I'm such an idiot. 
with all the acting pedigree of Tommy Wiseau. He asks if Supreme can take a look at it for him, saying that it keeps crashing on him, but Supreme isn't interested. As Ryan makes a crack about Supreme having PMS, Supreme says that he sat in solitary for plenty of hours and had the time to put two and two together, offering the equation of Shemin and Mondo plus Ryan and Keller equals him almost on death row. Ryan tells him that he has it wrong, as Supreme says that addition was never his best subject, favouring subtraction, as he then presents another equation, Oz minus Keller and Ryan equals justice, as Ryan retreats from the room. We touched on this previously when discussing deleted scenes, and it's all well and good speaking in these mathematical soundbites, but there still hasn't been a clear explanation as to how Supreme has come to the conclusion that Keller killed Shemin and Mondo, or how he's now worked Ryan into the mix. All of it could be linked very easily by having Supreme mention the necklace that was stolen, noticing that it went missing after he spoke to Ryan in the shower room. While he has come to the right conclusion, Without that key piece of knowledge, he's come to it without a logical explanation. Over in the laundry room, Keller is having his own conversation with Bear, who wants to know why Keller is so anxious to see the world rid of Supreme, Keller saying that it's for the same reason Burr wants him gone, that being that Supreme's grasp far exceeds his reach. Keller offers whatever assistance Burr needs in disposing of Supreme, but Burr says that he doesn't mean Supreme any harm and politely refuses Keller saying that he wishes Supreme only the best in a read-between-the-lines sort of way, Keller slamming down some detergent in annoyance to close the scene. Cut to the phones with Poet standing guard while Burr makes a call, telling someone known only as Tug that they need to be somewhere on Thursday at 11am sharp. Burr exits and tells Poet that they're all set, and as they walk off we pan around to Keller and Ryan, Keller with a beaming smile while Ryan looks a little more anxious. Ryan says they need to do something and fast, but Keller is much more relaxed, seeming pretty certain that Bear is going to take care of everything. A good example of the two different approaches here is Ryan feels as though the walls are beginning to close in, and as a result is beginning to panic and look for a quick solution, whereas Keller has taken on board what Bear was telling him in the laundry room. It's the best possible solution for the both of them, as if Bear has Supreme killed, then the two of them are in the clear for the murders of Shemin and Mondo. Their involvement goes to the grave with Supreme. Over in the interview room, we see Supreme explain to some woman that she couldn't see him because he was locked up in solitary, as we move across to an unknown man meeting with Poet. As Poet points downwards, the unknown man grabs a shank that has been taped to the underneath of the table and goes to leave. And as he does, Poet leaves as well, and this is the first time that I've noticed that the interview room has doors on either side of it. Because of how we see the shot, I always figured that there was only one way in and out. Augustus, wearing a Genpop uniform seemingly for no other reason than to illustrate a point, explains the sharpened toothbrush shank as our mystery man asks Supreme what's up, which brings Supreme to his feet, as he then stabs Supreme twice in the stomach before being led away. So this is Tug whom Bear was speaking to a moment ago, and he is played by hip-hop star Method Man in an uncredited appearance. We will see Tug for the remainder of this fourth series, but having him go uncredited here was a smart move. Much like how Kevin Spacey went uncredited in the opening titles of 1995-7, not having Method Man's name appear in the episode's opening credits avoided people waiting for him to show up, as around this time Method Man was a big name to be getting on the show, therefore adding an element of surprise to this scene. Of course, he's not the first celebrity guest the show has had, Evan Seinfeld has been on the show for a number of years now, and Rick Fox has recently returned, 
But perhaps other than LL Cool J back in Series 2, which was broadcast in 1998, he's probably the most culturally relevant name in terms of mainstream exposure to have appeared on the show around this time period. Following the attack, Leah questions Poet about how Tug got the shank into his possession, and whether or not Poet knew about Supreme being responsible for shooting Tug's brother, the crime that landed Supreme in Oz. While obviously the shank was placed there for Tug to find, Poet says that Tug must have brought it in himself, blaming lax security for not picking it up, and that perhaps he did know about Tug killing Supreme's brother, saying that he can't be held responsible for whatever Tug has brewing in his head, and playing the visit off as being impromptu. Leo tells Poet that perhaps some time in the cage will help him see things more clearly, as Poet complains that he didn't do shit, which is a fair point. He knows that the shank was under the table, but we don't actually see him place it there. For all we know, another one of Bear's crew taped it to the table before Poet even got there. We see Supreme being placed in a bed in the infirmary next to Augustus to close out Act 3. This shank is a classic. The bottom end of a toothbrush is carved down to its sharpest point, almost like an arrowhead. But the best part is, the weapon doesn't have to be concealed. It can be placed in a pocket. Bristles show it, ready to be grabbed for action. Look, I barely met Doug Daniels. He calls, he says he needs to see me. Man, how am I, how's I supposed to know what he's got brewing in his head? Did you know Supreme Allah was serving time for shooting Daniel's brother? Yeah, man, I guess. Where'd he get the shank? He must have brought it in with him. Look, don't be blaming me for your lack of security. Maybe some time in the cage will help you see things clear. Cage? I ain't do shit. I ain't do shit. Oh. Act 4 then gets underway in the library where Timmy Kirk is met by a returning Ray, marking his first appearance of Series 4B. There are a couple of reasons that explain BD's absence from the second half of Series 4. BD was given leave from the show for personal reasons, which I won't go into here because it's not my place to do so, while the other revolved around his joining the cast of Law & Order Special Victims Unit towards the end of the show's second season, although his debut had yet to air at this point in time. I haven't done a proper introduction for BD Wong so far on the show, so now is probably as good a point as any. Born October 24, 1960 in San Francisco, California, where he attended Lincoln High School, Bradley Darrell Wong discovered a love for acting prior to attending San Francisco State University. Making his screen acting debut on TV in 1983, appearing in the TV movie No Big Deal, BD would make his film debut three years later, appearing in a minor role in The Karate Kid Part 2. In 1988, BD's big break came when he made his Broadway debut playing the role of Song Ling to critical acclaim in M. Butterfly at the Eugene O'Neill Theatre for 777 performances between March 1988 and January 1990. Appearing opposite John Lithgow originally, as well as Tony Randall, David Jukes and Josh Rubenstein at various points in the show's run, the play tells the story of the relationship between a French diplomat, played by Lithgow, and a female opera singer from Peking, played by B.D., Female roles in the Beijing Opera traditionally being played by men as women were banned from appearing on stage. In order to retain the gender ambiguity, BD was billed under his initials rather than Bradley Darrell, something which has stuck ever since with his credits. A critical success, 
The player won a number of awards in 1988, including three Tony Awards, with BD winning the award for Best Performance by a Featured Actor in a Play, three Drama Desk Awards, with BD winning the award for Outstanding Featured Actor in a Play, three Outer Critics Circle Awards, with BD winning the award for Outstanding Debut Performance, as well as awards at the Theatre World Awards and the Clarence Derwent Awards Ceremonies. BD would return to film in 1991, playing the role of flamboyant wedding planner Howard Weinstein in Father of the Bride, while in 1993 he would appear as Dr. Henry Wu in the year's highest grossing film, Jurassic Park, setting up Jeff Goldblum's Doctor Ian Malcolm for his historic Life Finds a Way line. Also in 1993, BD was meant to appear as Randall Lee in Face Value at the Court Theatre, however the show never officially opened due to poor previews. The following year, in 1994, BD would appear in the groundbreaking ABC sitcom All American Girl, the first US sitcom to feature an entirely Asian leading cast. After negative reviews and what is simply labelled as controversy, the show struggled in the ratings and was cancelled after one season. In 1995, BD would reprise his role as Howard Weinstein in Father of the Bride Part 2 and appear on TV in episodes of Dazzle and Bless This House. In 1996, BD appeared on film in Executive Decision and voiced the role of a cockroach in the feature film adaptation of Joe's Apartment, a film which I've mentioned previously on the podcast. While on TV, he appeared as Dr. Glenn Cho in one episode of The X-Files, before appearing as Father Ray Mukada here on Oz in 1997, a role that was written specifically for him. Since the launch of Oz, BD lent his vocal talent to the speaking role of Lee Shang in 1998's Mulan seventh highest grossing film of the year with a worldwide box office total of $304 million. BD also returned to the Broadway stage in 1999, appearing at the Ambassador Theatre in You're a Good Man Charlie Brown between February and June of that year. BD would also appear on TV in episodes of Chicago Hope and Welcome to New York, which brings us to this point in time. So Ray mentions that he's been on retreat, so at least the show is acknowledging his absence rather than just ignoring it and he mentions to Timmy that Father Makaki, who has presumably been filling in for Ray in the interim, has told him that Timmy has stopped being an altar boy at the prison's masses. Without batting an eyelid, Timmy tells Ray that the Catholic Church is Satan's whore while the Pope sucks on the teat of the beast, and that Rome is the Gomorrah of the New World Order. Very edgelordy stuff coming from Timmy here. If he was around today, you can bet he'd be proudly peacocking around in his Burzum t-shirt because he's well black metal. While any mid-90s wrestling fan will tell you that the New World Order originated in Daytona Beach, Florida, not Rome, Italy. Ray is initially horrified. His, wait, what? face is fantastic. And he takes a seat asking where Timmy has heard all of this. Timmy saying that he heard it from Cloutier, who he thought was a real dipshit when he first arrived, but since then he feels as though a lot of what he says makes sense. And that Cloutier has said that if Timmy converts, he can do a correspondence course through a Virginia-based Bible college, attaining his college degree for free. Ray tells Timmy that if that's what he wants, there are plenty of schools to choose from, and that he'll even help him decide which one to pick. But Timmy tells him, no, no thanks, and sends Ray on his way telling him, God be with you, as the scene closes. Before we go any further, we've got to talk about Ray's new haircut for this series. The very popular in the late 90s, but a bit past its prime in the early noughties curtains with the centre parting. I don't think I ever went to this level with it. I rather foolishly opted for more of a bowl cut akin to Lloyd Christmas. But this is very similar to a haircut that my brother had for a few years prior to this. Definitely an of its time look. 
Seeking answers for Timmy's newfound outlook, Ray meets with Cloutier. It starts very cordially, with Ray saying that it was time that they met now that he was back from retreat, with Cloutier agreeing, although he says he was shocked with how the Protestant inmates of Oz were being served, Ray saying that he does the best that he can for everyone. He also says that he's glad that Cloutier is there to help and mentions his discussion with Timmy about wanting to earn a BA, Cloutier saying that with the right guidance, Timmy can find the way. That's exactly what Ray wants to talk about though, the right kind of education, and that he doesn't think that Bible college is right for Timmy. Cloutier asks if Ray feels that Timmy would be better learning from the Jesuits, a religious order in Rome known more commonly as the Society of Jesus, but Ray feels as though Timmy is impressionable due to his youth, and that he's perhaps a little lost or confused right now, and that he would hate for there to be any undue pressure on him. Cloutier points out that Timmy was baptised a Catholic and went through eight years of parochial education with monks in his high school, and Ray wants to talk about undue pressure? Ray says that he didn't ask Cloutier there for a theological debate, but Cloutier feels as though that's exactly what Ray wanted, and that Ray is afraid of losing Timmy to Christ, a pissed off Ray pointing out that Timmy already has Christ. And I'll admit that even I'm a little confused as to what exactly the difference is between Catholicism and whatever branch of Christianity Cloutier is supposed to belong to. Cloutier points to Ray's Christ on the cross that's hanging on the wall, calling it showbiz on a stick, as Ray points out Cloutier's hypocrisy and saying that he of all people has turned faith into a cartoon. Sensing Ray's rage, Cloutier tells him to be careful, mentioning anger and envy as two of the seven deadly sins as he gets up and leaves the office. But before he goes, he mentions that he'll be baptising Timmy as a true Christian that afternoon, and that Ray is welcome to attend, as we then see Timmy being baptised in the cafeteria, because where else, of course, to the crooning sound of Everything is Beautiful by Jim Neighbours. Ray makes his way through the cafeteria, but watches very little of the proceedings as the scene closes. I quite liked the scene between BD and Luke Perry, even though it was relatively short. They played off each other quite well, Cloutier clearly aware of how to use Ray's emotions against him despite having only just met him, and I'm looking forward to seeing how they do battle as the show goes on. We go to another of Sister Pete's victim-offender interactions, in which Beecher is opening up about his first days at Oz and sharing a pod with Adebisi, and how Schillinger came to him all friendly, Schillinger pointing out that he saved Beecher from Adebisi, as Pete tells him to pipe down so that Beecher can speak. Beecher admits that becoming the man that he is now from the one he was is his cross to carry, but that Schillinger needs to accept responsibility for his share in what's caused that. There's a knock at the door and Officer Armstrong enters the room much to Pete's annoyance, but he explains that Leo has asked to see Schillinger and that it's an emergency. Without hesitation, Schillinger leaves as we get a look at a concerned-looking Beecher, as we cut to Leo telling Schillinger that he's received a call from the Massachusetts State Police who a few days ago discovered the body of a young man who had died several months earlier, and that he was killed with a bullet to the back of his head. Using dental records, they've ascertained that the body is Hanks, but Schillinger is in complete denial, and that the cops must have made a mistake because Hanks in Florida at the moment. Leo admits that they could have made a mistake, but that he also doubts it, as Schillinger repeats over and over that they've made a mistake, his voice breaking a little more each time saying that Hank has a cute wife and that they're about to have a baby, which is the breaking point as he then shouts that Hank isn't dead and moves towards Leo, but is restrained by officers before he leaves. Another very quick scene this one, but as per usual, JK is great here. 
I love how Schillinger stands there, hands on hips, just wanting Leo to give it to him straight, and just listen to him come to terms with what he's been told. I got a call today from the Massachusetts State Police. A few days ago, they discovered the body of a young man who'd evidently been dead for several months, a bullet to the back of the head. They checked the dental records and discovered the identity of the victim, your son, Hank. No. Well, Hank's in Florida. The cops made a mistake. That's possible, but I doubt it. It's a mistake. The cops made a fucking mistake. It's... Hank's not dead. He can't be dead. He... He's got this cute little wife, and they're gonna have a baby. Hank is not dead! You hear me? He's not dead! Over in Unit B, Robson is trying to comfort Schillinger saying that Hank was involved in all sorts of shit, from drug deals to pimping, which I don't recall being mentioned before, but I could be wrong, and that there was any number of people who might want Hank dead. Schillinger turns away from the window that they have in the cell, asking if this is meant to be Robson consoling him, which he's right, Robson isn't exactly helping things here, but Robson says that this is him giving Schillinger the hard cold facts, as opposed to the cold hard facts as is said by everyone else, and that Hank was murdered and that someone has to pay. Robson instantly suspecting Beecher. Schillinger doesn't seem to see the link to begin with, but Robson mentions about how they kept expecting Beecher to retaliate for Gary's death only for nothing to happen, perhaps because Beecher had already taken care of it, and that there's a shitload of guys in Oz who could arrange a hit. Taking everything that Robson is saying on board and buying the idea, Schillinger begins to prowl around his cell, saying first off that he's going to kill Beecher's daughter, before elevating it to killing the entire Beecher family and storming off with Robson in tow. Having grabbed Jazz along the way, the three of them arrive in the cafeteria looking for Beecher, but he's nowhere to be found, as Cloutier comes over offering his condolences having heard about Hank's death. Schillinger thanks him as Cloutier offers for the two of them to go pray, but Schillinger is laser beam focused on finding Beecher right now, asking how does that quote go? There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time for every purpose under heaven, taken from the book of Ecclesiastes, meaning that there is a right time for all actions, and that the time for praying is over. Cloutier tries again to get through to Schillinger, telling him that Jesus can comfort him, but much like how he did to Leo a few moments ago, Schillinger points his finger right in Cloutier's face, telling him not today. You know Schillinger means business when that pointy finger comes out. As Schillinger, Jazz and Robson leave, Robson tells Cloutier to leave Schillinger alone, implying that he needs to sort this his way, as Cloutier takes a seat next to Timmy as we carry on down the table where Keller sits next to Rebido asking where Beecher is and that shit is coming down fast. Rebido informs Keller that Beecher had a playdate with Holly as Keller says that he needs to get to him. Over in the interview room turned into a nursery, Beecher, who does a great pretend voice for a lion, is playing with Holly while Angus watches on from the outside. Presumably, Angus is the one who's brought Holly to this playdate. Angus hears a voice and turns to see Robson, who's asking if he's Beecher's brother. Naive Angus tells Robson that he is, as Robson plunges a shank into Angus' stomach, which seems to be the go-to act of violence for this episode, as he drops what appears to be a sharpened bedspring to the floor and escapes the scene. As Angus collapses to the floor, he manages to bang on the window to get Beecher's attention as the room is vacated and an officer calls for help, reporting that a civilian is down. It's one thing to have violence occur between inmates, but it's much more serious when a visiting civilian ends up on the wrong end of it. 
Beecher pleads with them to get help for Angus as we get an Augustus vignette detailing the shank used, which was indeed a bedspring, which is often referred to as the Don Juan. Named after the fictional Spanish libertine who first appeared in El Burrado de Sevilla de Convidado de Piedra, the trickster of Seville and the Stone Ghost, first published in 1630. Augustus says that much like Don Juan, a character that devoted his life to seducing women, the aim is to penetrate, and that this shank leaves a small wound, but goes deep, as we see Angus being stretched out of the infirmary, and Beecher's dad Harrison has now arrived on the scene, who Beecher tells to take Holly away, and that she's in danger from the same man that killed Gary. Harrison says they'll call the police, but Beecher tells him that the police can't help them now, and tells his dad once again to take Holly far away, asking if his dad understands. Harrison says that he does, but he's not sure that Holly will, and tells his son to explain to her what's happening, which Beecher does in a roundabout way, saying that Grandpa is going to take her on a trip, but that once she's back they'll be together forever and ever, and tells her that he loves her and to remember that as he gives her a massive hug while just about holding back the tears. Back in M-City, Keller has caught up with Beecher, telling him that he has to kill Schillinger, but Beecher shakes his head as Keller asks what the alternative is. Beecher says that he'll let Schillinger kill him, and perhaps his offer of dying will put an end to all of this, and that maybe he'll let Beecher's family be. Keller asks what Beecher expects to get out of Schillinger, but Beecher feels as though he's out of options. Keller, however, has a plan, suggesting they pin Hank's murder on someone else. Beecher doesn't seem keen on the idea, reckoning that Schillinger then kills an innocent person, and refuses to go along with it, saying that he has enough death on his conscience already. He gets up to leave, but Keller pulls him back and holds Beecher by the shoulders, like he has done in the past, and tells Beecher to listen to what he's saying and to think it through. Beecher says that he already has and that his family can't hide forever, and that if he doesn't handle this now, then Schillinger will destroy them. But that's what Keller is driving at, handling things, and that they can do that if they just kill Schillinger. Beecher understands that even if he does, the Aryans will still kill him, and that for all he knows, Schillinger's currently unborn grandchild will grow up and find his grandchild and kill them, fearing that the cycle will just keep repeating, and that offering himself up to Schillinger is the only way out. Beecher tries to leave again, but Kellinger pulls him in closer this time, as Beecher tells him to let him go. Keller begins to loosen his grip, leading Beecher into a false sense of security, as he headbutts Beecher good and hard, bringing Beecher to his knees and completely stunned. Keller punches Beecher with a hard right hand for good measure, as we cut to the classroom where Cloutier is finishing up his class saying that tomorrow they'll discuss the spiritual evaluation of Zedekiah, as Keller arrives to talk with him. Just to point out as well, still no mention of Ronnie's death in that last scene between Beecher and Keller. Surely Beecher knows what's happened to Ronnie. It's not like he just disappeared. He must know that Keller killed him, right? Keller asks if Cloutier knows what Schillinger has planned against Beecher, Cloutier admitting that he does, but that he's helpless to stop him, as Keller tells him that he was the one who put out the hit on Hank, not Beecher, and that he'll confess his crime to the authorities, but Cloutier needs to tell Schillinger the truth, quote-unquote. Of course, we know that this is total fabrication from Keller, we know that Beecher got Chucky to order the hit, but using Cloutier like this is an interesting twist. He's taken Schillinger under his wing somewhat, and presumably Schillinger will have filled Cloutier in on some of his history in Oz that he's repentant of, 
but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's given Cloutier the entire laundry list of sin that he's committed. Cloutier buys Keller's story, informing Schillinger in the gym that it was in fact Keller that ordered the hit, and that Beecher is totally innocent, and that doing harm to him or his family would be a tragic mistake. Schillinger contemplates what Cloutier is saying and thanks him for coming to see him as he leaves with Robson, who isn't buying this at all, calling it bullshit and repeating that Beecher killed Hank. Schillinger takes a large intake of breath before heading off. He isn't sure what to believe, something that will come up in the next scene. Or maybe he does believe it and feels as though he got caught up in the shock of being told that Hank was dead that he was willing to believe that Beecher was the culprit. As we see Schillinger being escorted down the dark corridor en route to another session with Pete and Beecher, we see Beecher sporting some bruising around his eye from the punch that Keller gave him, as Schillinger arrives and takes his seat to get the session underway. What's your best memory of your son? First time he came up, unprompted, and hugged me and said, Daddy, I love you. Beecher, I promise not to hurt your daughter or anybody else in your family. See, I want to believe that you are innocent of killing Hank. I want to believe because I need to believe in something, something besides hate. This grandchild is coming. Is my last chance, my last hope. I want this kid to put his arms around my neck and say, I love you. Because <clears throat> see, I never had that before. I am sorry about your son. Schillinger rises from his chair and offers Beecher a handshake, which Beecher accepts and tells Schillinger that he's sorry about his son too, as the scene closes on a shot of the two of them unified in this handshake. When these interactions began last episode, you saw that there was a very clear divide in the form of the table between the two men. That table is still there, but as the sessions have gone on, Beecher, perhaps more than Schillinger, has slowly moved around from his side, signifying the tensions beginning to ease and the two men coming together. In this third session, they're practically side by side, and both of them are even leaning forward in the chairs rather than sitting back in them. That isn't to say that these two men are going to be skipping hand in hand through any meadows or up and down the Oz corridors anytime soon, but this is a huge moment in the show especially coming so close to what at some point may have been the final stretch towards the end of the show. Of course, as I've mentioned before, there's still plenty of time for everything to come crashing down around them and for everything to be undone, but the idea that these two could put their differences behind them has seemed an unlikely conclusion considering what we've seen over the last 36 episodes. Both men are great in this scene too, but I'd say this is one of JK's best scenes on the show. 
As I alluded to a moment ago, he isn't sure what to believe or who to believe, but he has to believe something. And if believing Beecher's innocence is what it takes to have some semblance of peace in his or their lives, then that's a pill he's willing to swallow. And it does have to be him that does it, because he's the one that began all of this. He's the one that tricked Beecher to begin with, he's the one that drove Beecher crazy, it was his actions that drove Beecher to seek drugs as an escape, he was the one that introduced Keller into proceedings, everything comes back to Schillinger and him referring to Beecher as his livestock, and saying that Beecher's ass belongs to him. Over in receiving and discharge, Keller is sat in his orange jumpsuit and handcuffs waiting to be transported to Boston to be tried for the murder of Hank. Pete enters, and Keller seems a little surprised to see her considering all of their history, asking if she's come to wish him a bon voyage. Pete admits that she doesn't know quite what's happened, but she suspects that, as usual, Keller knows the whole truth, which Keller tries to brush off, saying that he's told that, but Pete suspects that he lied, and that he did so for a greater truth, and references the conversation they had previously about God, and how God chooses them rather than them choosing God. Pete reminds Keller about him saying that he wanted God to choose him, but feeling as though it was too late, and she tells Keller that it's never too late, and that God did finally choose him, and that he chose wisely, which nearly brings Keller to tears. The buzzer sounds as Beecher arrives, Pete having arranged for he and Keller to have a couple of minutes to say their farewells. Beecher hugs Keller, who apologises for not being able to hug him back, what with the handcuffs and all as Beecher tells him that Schillinger believed Cloutier, and that he thinks Beecher is innocent, and even shook his hand. Saying that everything has worked out, Keller says that he gets a trip to Massachusetts to stand trial, and then serve life in Cedar Junction far from Schillinger's reach. MCI Cedar Junction, formerly known as MCI Walpole, is a real prison, first opened in 1956 to replace Charlestown State Prison, which at the time was the oldest prison in the country. Situated halfway between the neighbouring MCI Norfolk and nearby Gillette Stadium, the maximum security prison was considered one of the most violent prisons in the US during the 1970s, and as of January 2020 had a capacity of 346 maximum security inmates, as well as 65 medium security inmates held in their respective general populations. Notable inmates of the prison include the serial killer Tony Costa, Albert DeSalvo, widely believed to be the infamous Boston Strangler, and abortion opponent John Salvi. Albert DeSalvo was murdered by an inmate on November 25th, 1973 while incarcerated at the prison, while Costa and Salvi both committed suicide while at Cedar Junction in 1974 and 1996 respectively. At the time of recording, the prison is still operational, however it is due to close no later than April 2024 due to a falling incarceration rate, the rate being at its lowest since 1987. Important as well that you don't confuse MCI Cedar Junction for the Cedar Junction Family Resort and Water Park located in Linwood, South Africa. Beecher tells Keller that there are Aryans in Massachusetts too, which I'll just take Beecher at his word on. I'm not going looking for Massachusetts-based neo-Nazis as part of my search history. But Keller calls them half-arsed Aryans, and that he's proven himself pretty nimble when it comes to staying alive. As Beecher asks him why is he doing this? Keller tells him that he thought it was fairly obvious, and that he actually loves the irony of having gotten away with all the other murders that he actually committed, yet here he is confessing to the one that he's innocent of. As the buzzer sounds, Pete calls an end to proceedings, but Beecher and Keller share a passionate kiss to say goodbye, 
probably the one genuine showing of love between them on the show, as Beecher squeezes Keller tight and Keller tells him that he'll see him. Beecher asks him when exactly, Keller saying that it'll either be back in Oz or in heaven. Beecher asks if Keller really believes that they'll get into heaven, with Keller saying that God doesn't have the balls to keep the two of them out, and he's escorted away as Augustus narrates about how the worst stab wound is the one to the heart, and that while you might survive it, you'll never be the same again as the episode closes. You have a couple minutes. So I can't have you back. Challenger believed Cloutier. Thinks I'm innocent. He even shook my hand. Yeah, you see. And I get a nice trip to Massachusetts. Stay in trial, serve life in Cedar Junction, far from Schillinger's reach. There are Aryans in Massachusetts. Half-assed Aryans. Besides, I think I've proven that I'm pretty nimble when it comes to staying alive. Why are you doing this? I would have thought that was fairly obvious. Yeah. Besides, I love the irony. I've gotten away with all of those murders I actually committed, and here I am confessing to the one I'm innocent of. Uh, it's time, gentlemen. I'll see you. When? Back here. Or in heaven. Do you really think we're gonna get into heaven? Ah, uh, you and me together. God doesn't have the balls to keep us out. The worst stab wound is the one to the heart. Sure, most people survive it, but the heart is never quite the same. There's always a scar. Which is meant, I guess, to remind you that, even for a little while, someone made your heart beat faster. And that's a scar you can live with, proudly, all the days of your life. So there you go, Series 4, Episode 12, Cuts Like a Knife. Another episode which I'm sad to say seems rushed in places, directionless in others, but is ultimately saved by a strong closing segment. The Chinese refugees have gone, having served very little purpose in the end, while the ageing drug storyline has thankfully been dropped, and in a much quicker way than what I remembered it being. I thought that storyline went much longer than what it did. I have visions of it spanning multiple episodes and not just these two. Don't get me wrong, I'm glad it's gone, because as I covered last episode, I think the whole thing is fucking stupid looking back at it now but I was sure that it went for much longer than what it actually did. Miguel ending up back in solitary and rubbing shit all over the walls continues his story of wallowing in absolute misery, while Boosmal has returned after a short stay in solitary and seemingly suffering no repercussions of having dug another tunnel, despite Ribido going to bat for his friend. Yes, it's a great act of friendship on his part, getting Boosmalas out of solitary, saying, well, technically he did stop digging after you told him not to anymore. But that doesn't take away the fact he was planning to try and escape once again. 
As I suggested back in series 2, surely the solution to boost Mali's digging obsessions is putting him in a pod on the upper level of M-City. Supreme returning to M-City and beginning separate feuds with Ryan and Augustus was just sort of there, as was Omar stabbing McManus in an attempt to gain some notoriety among the inmates. While I'm intrigued to see Ray and Cloutier square off, even if I don't completely understand the apparent conflicting interest of people of the same religion, introducing it at this point in the show, which was still touch and go about whether it was returning or not, seems a little odd, as does introducing Jaya into a feud with Morales at the behest of the exit in Gonjin. Everything just seems to be a bit all over the place right now, and as I mentioned earlier, the show is really starting to miss Adebisi as a central villain. Morales and Chucky are sort of the leaders of M-City right now, but they've only really got the drug trade going for them. Adebisi had a much tighter stranglehold on M-City as a whole. When he would refer to himself as the king of M-City, he meant it literally. Whereas right now, M-City is a much more open playing field, just waiting for someone to separate themselves from the pack. On the plus side though, there was some minor progression of Leroy and Saeed's storyline bringing back Saeed's hypertension for the first time in a number of years. But the final segment featuring Beecher and Schillinger coming to a truce as well as Keller's send-off was for the most part excellently executed. Robson stabbing Angus was perhaps a tad rushed, but it sort of added to the chaos unravelling in the wake of Schillinger finding out about the death of Hank. Everything was beginning to spiral out of control at that point. I'll come back to that segment when I talk about my episode MVP, but the coming together of Schillinger and Beecher was a moment that for any other TV show would be a more than passable conclusion, both men putting their differences aside and finding a common ground to end the bloodshed. This being Oz, of course, which seems to deal more or less exclusively in abject misery, the show can't realistically end that way, and there's still plenty of time for further twists to the tale. Get the fuck out of my office. Two deleted scenes to talk about for this episode, the first of which sees Ryan and Miguel working out in the gym. Miguel asks Ryan if he's ever been cross-country, Ryan saying that he always wanted to but shit got in the way, as Miguel says that when he was hitchhiking, he'd always get asked his name and what he did for a living. Naturally, he couldn't exactly tell them that he was an escaped convict, so he decided to make a game out of what he could make up and get away with. At various points he was either an oil rigger or a cattle rancher, and he even convinced one dumb fuck that he wrote Living La Vida Loca, which of course had been a monster hit in 1999 for Ricky Martin, topping the charts in over 20 countries. Of course, Miguel didn't write that song, it was written by Draco Rosa and Desmond Child, and the two of them share a laugh about it. But Miguel rises from his workout bench saying that they believed him, or at least wanted to believe, as did he, just to be someone other than himself. Ryan tells him bad news and that Miguel is stuck being who he is, and that in terms of his dilemma he can either kill Burr, which is presumably mentioned to Ryan off-screen, or he can become his new best friend. So this scene must have come between the scenes of Miguel talking about being a double agent and meeting with Burr in the laundry room. The second scene, in fact it's a little block of scenes, sees Poet reciting a poem as he's brought back from Leo having interviewed him after the stabbing of Supreme. Jazz who is released from the M-City cage, having had to have committed some sort of infraction at some point, makes way for Poet to be placed in, as Burr watches Keller and Ryan make their way up the stairs. Ryan is giving out to Keller about how he said that Burr would get the job done, but that Supreme is still breathing, and he's worried about Supreme jabbering about framing him for the murders of Shemin and Mondo. 
Ryan is clearly in a state of panic here, far from the calculated manipulator he usually is, and he's giving out to Keller like it's his fault, which obviously it isn't. Burr refused Keller's offer, it's not like Keller can just force Burr into a partnership. They'd be outnumbered against Burr's crew. Keller asks what exactly Ryan wants him to do, Ryan suggesting that they pay off one of the Latino hospital orderlies to take out Supreme. But what if that guy then goes blabbing to the hacks? They've then got issues with the Latinos, and he tells Ryan to let Burr finish what he started, as Ryan then suggests a plan of delivering some dodgy food on the hospital run the next day, much like how he did to Nino Shibeta back in Series 1. But Keller tells him that he isn't going to do anything, and goes to leave. Ryan asks if Keller is giving him orders now, asking if he looks like a prag to him, even saying, do I look like Beecher? To which Keller tells him, fuck you. Ryan says that he doesn't suck cock, whether that be Keller's or anybody else's, and that if they weren't tied together by these murders, he wouldn't even let Keller lick his ass. Keller spits on the pod glass and tells Ryan to lick that, which was something that I actually did quite like. Keller, with his belongings, then heads down to Beecher's pod, the two of them back sharing again as Beecher tells him welcome home, as Keller jokes about liking what he's done with the place. Beecher tells Keller that he's been interviewed about Ronnie's murder, which as I've mentioned throughout has never been brought up in the actual episode, and that he was asked a lot of questions about Ronnie and Keller's past. Keller asks what Beecher said, Beecher saying that he didn't say anything, and when Beecher asks Keller the same question, Keller explains about how he was all teary-eyed after finding his friend with his neck snapped, and that they have no hard evidence to tie the murder to him when Beecher asks if they feel like they're just going to let it go. The reunion is cut short as Beecher has to leave to go to another session with Pete and Schillinger, Keller saying that Beecher just won't give up and needs to accept that he and Schillinger are enemies, and that they will be forever. Beecher, however, seems optimistic, saying that things have been going pretty well, as Keller grabs his toothbrush and calls Schillinger a scumfuck. Beecher holds Keller by the shoulder and kisses the back of his neck, saying that he'll see him later as the scene closes. The first scene between Ryan and Miguel I can understand cutting, it doesn't really add anything other than a bit of story about Miguel on the outside. It does show how miserable he is, making up entire stories just to be someone else for a while, but we get enough of that throughout the scenes that made the cut already. Any more of it would have been hammering the same point again and again, so I can see why this was cut. The second block of scenes presumably cut for time more than anything else as they run nearly three additional minutes. We don't really need to see Poet being put in the cage. The dissension between Keller and Ryan wouldn't really go anywhere, considering that Keller leaves at the end of the episode anyway. But the scene between Keller and Beecher, big questions looming over that. As I've said, Ronnie's death isn't mentioned once during the finished cut of the episode, and there are multiple instances of Keller and Beecher interacting as if nothing's happened, as if Ronnie never even existed. Including this scene would have at least provided an explanation as to Keller and Beecher getting back together again. The scene in which Keller headbutts and punches Beecher, they're just back in a pod together. It's never explained that they've moved back in together. It's just seemingly happened at some random point. Including the scene is still rife with issues though, as Beecher has rekindled a relationship with a sociopath, and doesn't seem to be bothered in the slightest that Keller has murdered someone, supposedly in an effort to prove his love to him. Murder is apparently just part of this relationship. Perhaps it was down to the rush writing schedule, but had they had more time, 
you've got to feel as though they could have come to a more logical reason for Keller and Beecher to reunite, rather than just ignoring that somebody has been murdered. So, cut the first one and most of the others, but with a bit of work, you could have had the Keller and Beecher scene in here somewhere. With a death toll of two for this episode, it's time to say goodbye to Jorge Vasquez and Fred Nuggets Wick, played by Jose Hernandez Jr. and Chaz Menendez respectively, and we've also got a number of others leaving the show too. Since leaving Oz, Jose has continued to act in predominantly minor roles, most notably in Person of Interest in 2012, as well as appearing as himself in six episodes of Food Hound Tidbits. In 2017, Jose appeared in Gotham on Fox, and also earned his first writing credit for the Spawn fan film Choices, where he also acted as executive producer. At the time of recording, his most recent credit is listed as being for the short film Lucky Penny, released in 2020. Chaz Menendez has also appeared mostly in minor roles since leaving the show, appearing on shows such as The Sopranos, Fringe, Damages, Jessica Jones, Blue Bloods and a number of shows from the Law & Order franchise, while on film he appeared in minor roles in Precious, Cop Out, Shame and Nobody's Perfect. Along with being an accomplished stunt performer, Chaz has also worked behind the camera earning producer credits for Women Do It Better in 2009 and Among the Joneses in 2010 as well as earning director credits on Tough Man Triathlon in 2013 and Not Saved by the Bell in 2018, where he also earned a writing credit, as well as working as an editor. His most recent acting credits at the time of recording are listed as being for the film Skull, which is completed and awaiting release, and Arbidae, which is listed as being in post-production. With the refugees on their way back to China, this is also the final appearance on the show for Gong Jin, played by Jin S. Kim. After leaving Oz, Jin appeared in Law & Order Criminal Intent during the show's first season finale, as well as doing voiceover work on Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. Jin has continued to act on TV in minor roles on shows such as How to Make It in America and Power, as well as Feed the Beast and Bull in more recent years. In 2014, Jin earned his first producer credit for the short film Tinto, while between 2016 and 2017 he appeared in three episodes of the TV series The Other F Word, as well as landing minor roles in Gotham and God Friended Me. In addition to his film and TV work, Jin has continued to work in theatre, with credits for productions such as Shoe Story, Cynthia and the Dreadful Kite, Loveness, which was written by Oz alumni Craig Mums Grant, as well as The Oldest Boy and Aubergine. Having joined the Labyrinth Theatre Company in the 1990s, Jin served as the company's first official president in addition to appearing in productions of Race, Religion and Politics and The Fairy Tale Project, which was co-produced with the Public Theatre. Jin serves as the executive producer of the New York-based non-profit organisation Developing Artists, while his most recent credits include the short films The Small and Fresh Air, while at the time of recording he is set to appear in the short film Refraction, which is listed as completed, as well as the TV series More Than, where he is also credited as a producer and writer. Also leaving the show having made their final appearances are Nancy Mears, Angus Beecher and Gao Lu Zhao, played by Stephanie Pope, Jace Bartok and Elaine Z, respectively. Post-Oz, Stephanie appeared in the TV shows Ed in 2002 and The Jury in 2004, before taking a break from acting until 2012, where she appeared in Law & Order Special Victims Unit during the show's 13th season. From April 2013 to January 2015, Stephanie appeared in the Tony Award-winning Pippin at the Music Box Theatre, 
while in 2020 she appeared in the short film's compassionate release and It's Alright Dad. Her most recent credit is listed as being for the film Bull Street, which is currently listed as being in post-production. Following his short run on Oz, Jace Bartok was seen on the big screen playing the subway guitarist in the first of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man films, while in 2003 he appeared in The Station Agent and Freezer 5. Having appeared in multiple roles in the Law & Order franchise between 2000 and 2009, Jace landed a recurring role on White Collar in 2010, and would appear in minor roles in shows such as Pan Am, The Following, and Elementary. In 2018, Jace landed the role of the dad as well as providing other voices to the show Pinkalicious and Peterific, where he was credited for 30 episodes. These days, Jace works as an independent filmmaker in the New York area. His most recent projects at the time of recording including The Prince of Soho, which is currently listed as being in pre-production, as well as working on a documentary focused on burlesque star Dita Von Teese. Following a handful of appearances here on Oz, Elaine C only continued to act for one more year, during which time she earned credits on TV for ER, appearing for one episode in the show's seventh season, as well as Spider Games where she had the recurring role of Alicia Lamb. Her final acting credit is listed as the 2002 short film, The Complex. The last person to leave the show this episode is the episode's guest director, Steve Buscemi. Throughout 2001, Steve earned acting credits for Double Whammy and Ghost World, where he won his second Independent Spirit Award, as well as lending his vocal talent to the animated film Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, and closed out the year starring alongside Billy Crystal and John Goodman in Pixar's Monsters, Inc., playing the role of the villainous Randall. At the conclusion of 2001, Steve directed his first episode of The Sopranos, directing the third season episode Pine Barrett widely considered to be the show's best episode. Steve would join the cast during the show's fifth season as Tony Bledetto, appearing for 16 episodes between 2004 and 2006, as well as directing a further three episodes before the show's conclusion. Becoming one of film's most recognisable character actors, Steve earned credits for movies such as Big Fish, The Island, Interview where he also wrote the screenplay, as well as The Messenger, Rampart and Monsters University the 2013 prequel to Monsters, Inc. While on TV, he has appeared twice on The Simpsons, as well as the recurring role of Lenny Wozniak in 30 Rock, appearing for six episodes between 2007 and 2013. Continuing to work as a director, Steve directed a number of episodes of Nurse Jackie, as well as episodes of 30 Rock, his own park bench with Steve Buscemi web series, Portlandia, and Miracle Workers, both of which he has also earned acting credits for. Between 2010 and 2014, Steve portrayed Enoch Nucky Thompson in HBO's Boardwalk Empire, arguably his most successful leading role, winning the best performance by an actor in a television series at the 2011 Golden Globe Awards, as well as two Screen Actors Guild Awards. Despite being a success among critics, the show always seemed to be living in the shadow of HBO's other main show at the time, Game of Thrones, the latter having debuted the day before the finale of Boardwalk Empire's debut season. Despite this, viewership ratings remained consistent throughout the show's run, with the show's final episode in 2014 attracting an average of 2.3 million viewers. At the time of recording, Steve's most recent acting credit is listed as being for the film The Year Between, with his most recent directing credit coming for The Listener, but it is Steve's generosity away from the film and television industry that are perhaps most notable. Following the tragic events of 9-11, which occurred a little over six months after the broadcast of this episode, Steve returned to work for his old firefighting company, 
FDNY Engine 55 in New York's Little Italy. Working 12-hour shifts as a volunteer for several days following the fall of the Twin Towers, Steve has played down his involvement when questioned about it in interviews, refusing to give any at the time and preferring to get on with the job rather than taking any plaudits. But according to an article by The Independent on the event's 21st anniversary, Steve has said, quote, It was a privilege to be able to do it. It was great to be able to connect with the firehouse I used to work with and with some of the guys I worked alongside. And it was enormously helpful for me because while I was working, I didn't really think about it as much, feel it as much, end quote. In 2003, Steve was arrested at a firefighters union rally protesting the planned closure of a number of fire stations, as well as a call for higher wages. In 2012, following Hurricane Sandy, Steve would volunteer once again to help with the cleanup operation at Breezy Point, the storm having battered various points of the eastern seaboard. In 2014, Steve narrated the HBO documentary Good Job! Stories of the FDNY, as well as taking a seat on the board of advisors for Friends of Firefighters, a charity organisation dedicated to providing services to firefighters and their families, a board of which he still sits on today. My episode MVP, very easy to pick this time round, as how can it go to anyone other than Chris Keller? Beecher and Keller have been on again, off again more times than I care to remember as of late, their most recent reuniting occurring in this very episode, and we've been asking the question of whether they truly love each other or not an awful lot. It's always been a case of Beecher seemingly to be very much in love with Keller, while those feelings may not have always been reciprocated from Keller's side. Here though, Keller has done an incredible thing in taking the heat for the killing of Hank Schillinger by essentially sacrificing himself allowing for Beecher and Schillinger to continue on their road to redemption with each other. I've mentioned before about how things between Beecher and Schillinger are always teetering on the edge, ready to come crashing down at a moment's notice, but Keller has committed an act here that could be the defining moment that ultimately saves Beecher from Schillinger and the Aryans. While it goes some way to prove his love to Beecher, taking the heat for a crime that he hasn't committed, it's actually a very smart play by Keller in the grand scheme of things, as with him having been transferred to Massachusetts to stand trial, presumably on a conspiracy to commit murder charge, that will in turn delay the FBI investigation into the murders that Agent Pierce is conducting. Pete calling back to her and Keller's previous conversation about God choosing Keller was a phenomenal piece of storytelling, one which was actually set in motion by Cyril of all people, and Keller's closing comments to Beecher about them always being together cemented the love between them. So for those reasons, Chris Keller gets the episode MVP. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so over on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Castbox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, depending on where you are in the world, or wherever you get your podcasts from. There you will find the first three series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 4 so far, and you will also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes as well. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or on social media on Instagram and Twitter where you can get all the updates about the podcast by following the handle at insideozpodcast. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, if Twitter is no longer your thing, you can now follow the show on Mastodon by following the handle at Podcast at mastodon.world. 
Next time on Inside Oz, there's a snowstorm coming as we embrace the cold of the Series 4 Episode 13, Blizzard of Oz 01, in which Gloria has to face up to the fatal consequences of the aging drug trial, Ryan receives some surprising news from a visitor, while over on Death Row there are some important decisions to be made, Boos Malis and Norma get set to tie the knot, and Burr and Morales continue to plan to go to war. All of this and much, much more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone. Sleep.